Welcome to Poverty Unpacked, the podcast series in which we discuss the hidden sides of poverty. In conversation with others, we explore how poverty affects the mind, relationships, emotions and society as a whole, and what can be done to change it. In this episode, we speak with Elizabeth Babcock, President and CEO of Empath. Empath is a non-profit based in Boston in the US that aims to help its participants achieve economic independence. They use an approach called brain science-based mentoring or mobility mentoring, and they use insights from behavioral, neurological, and social sciences. Empath pioneered this approach first starting in 2009. It's now being implemented in many countries across the world. Together we speak about what brain science can tell us about living in poverty, and how we can inform successful approaches to poverty reduction. We talk about individualized coaching, but also how systemic issues are really important to address in order to break the cycle of poverty. Beth, thank you very much for joining the podcast today. It is a pleasure to have you on the show. Now, you are director of Empath, and you have a unique approach, one that involves brain science-based mentoring. So to kickstart our conversation, Could you explain what that means? Well, mentoring is an approach of working side by side with low-income families to help them move out of poverty. So we partner with low-income families and help them decide what goals they want to set and the path they want to take to move forward to help improve their life circumstances. And brain science-informed mentoring is when you do that mentoring or coaching informed by a wonderful wealth of new pure science and also social science that has revealed to us how poverty, trauma, stress, racism impact the way people think and behave and how they chart their lives moving forward, their health, and a number of other areas of of human development. And can you talk us through an example of exactly what that means? If somebody comes through your program, what kind of support do they get? And how is that support different from what they might get elsewhere? Well, I think it's very typical for NGOs that are trying to help people who are in poverty to really have a program that they deliver that helps people get training or helps them get access to benefits or helps them get housing um, or other kinds of services that help people who are unable to fund all these services or um, the needs they have themselves because of being in poverty. And so the organizations have a tendency to be focused on one particular thing, education or, or other things that will help people uh, get ahead and to deliver that service to the individual. When you're doing brain science-informed coaching, instead what you're doing is you're sitting next to the person and saying to them, what do you see as the problems that you have that are getting in your way of being able to live your life to the fullest and do the things you want to do? What are the kinds of goals that you have for your life? And then helping people sort of navigate what steps they could take, whether it be education or help with their money or help with their personal circumstances or housing, what steps that they could take in any or all of those areas and how to take them in a way that really optimizes their use of their very limited time and also their very limited financial resources. So brain science-informed coaching really is a, a process of standing next to someone to help them 
build the skills that they need to navigate their own decision-making and goal-setting processes, and in doing so, to achieve better outcomes. And what we know is that um, people who are helped, for example, to get education, who want to get education, who want to graduate from college, they'll go to college or they'll go to a training program. And then in the United States, 75% of them who are in poverty will not complete that program, will not graduate within six years of having started their program. When you stand next to someone to help them with coaching, you're not just helping them get an education, but you're helping them think about all the things that are stopping that 75% from being able to do what it is they want to do and help them navigate and think about how they can stay on course with something that is very important to them that they want to achieve by thinking about more than one thing at once, not just the education, but the other life circumstances, their money or other things that may be getting in the way of them doing the very thing they want to do to help themselves get ahead. Thank you, Beth, for this really comprehensive overview. You just mentioned that the mentoring that you do is based on insights from brain sciences, psychology and social sciences. And and you mentioned how the mentoring is being alongside, accompanying people through the process of their lives and navigating many different obstacles. What are some of the insights from the sciences that have informed the mentoring? It's, it's really, really rich. The behavioral sciences, as well as the pure sciences, are converging to tell us how poverty, trauma, oppression, racism, how they impact the way people think and behave. And what these sciences tell us, and the pure sciences, neuroscience as well, tell us is that people who are under enormous amounts of stress and being in poverty or being uh, discriminated against or having survived trauma is incredibly, incredibly stressful. And when you're under huge amounts of stress, uh, the human person, you know, just thinks about, has a tendency to think about one thing at a time. We're wired to only think about the most important stressor. So the most recent and direct thing that happens to us is the thing that we are preoccupied with and we think about all the time. So we think about one thing at a time and we also have a tendency to think only about the current moment and not about the future. Again, that's normal human behavior. It's been wired that way to protect us. So uh, we think about the, the thing that's happening at the moment and that makes it very, very hard for us to be able to choose and navigate what kinds of steps would be best for us to take. So for example, what's very common for us will be, we'll have a a participant who will be perhaps trying very hard to complete a class in school and will be on a bus to go to the last examination of the semester for that class, where if they complete that examination, they will be able to get credit for that class or maybe even graduate. And they'll get a phone call from the school where their child is attending. And the the phone call will say, your child is having an asthma attack. We need you to come to school to get him. We need him to be taken care of. And what happens is everything about that exam and the importance of that exam flies out the window. People don't even think about it at all. Science calls it a swamping effect. And so we get swamped by the new problem, the new crisis of the moment. And instead of doing what people who were under maybe slightly less stress might do, 
which is to start thinking, do I have a friend who could go to school to meet my child? Could the nurse watch my child for an hour and a half while I go to school to finish this exam? Are there other options for me for how to handle this because my future is important and this is important for my child too? Our head does not go to that place to find those solutions, to find those other ways of handling decision-making. And instead, our, our participants and others will throw up their hands and say, ah, oh, I can't take the exam today. I have to go get my child and that's that. So human beings, their normal and natural reactions under stress and with people in poverty, constant stress undermine pe people's ability to be able to think about and navigate toward longer term goals and achieve them. Yeah, very interesting. And an interesting example that you mentioned here as well, because it makes me think about what is particular about the situation of people in poverty or on low income. The one that you just mentioned, I can imagine people in all sorts of situations reacting in a similar way ditching the exam and going out and collect their child. So what makes it so particular for people in poverty and why would they need a mentoring approach like this? Well, because when one has lived under chronic stress, the habits of the mind are different than the habits of the mind for people who are not under that chronic stress. For people who haven't been raised under extremely stressful circumstances, um, the, the tendency to think about that plan B, to believe that there is an option, to start rifling through your head for how else can I handle this, how can I stay on track, is habituated. But for people who have grown up under the stresses of trauma or oppression or poverty, and all of them, then what happens is it becomes habituated to sort of react and deal with that stressor of the moment and to believe that other options are not available. And so therefore to sort of lurch from one problem to another in what uh, those of us who work in the field often call the crisis du jour. When you work with families who are very low uh, income, then what you find is that that you'll be trying to work on a particular thing, like helping people improve their housing or their money or, or their education or their career. And you'll set plans together. And then what will happen is consistently over and over and over again, those plans will be disrupted. And then workers in the field say, why don't they make good decisions? Why don't they stick with their plans? Why do I always have to do this whack-a-mole of a new problem every day instead of having people uh, staying on track to achieve what they want? Why are they so easily derailed? And it's not a they, it's not a they, it's an us. It's human beings in general are wired to react in a certain way that becomes habituated by life circumstances. And so when you do coaching with individuals who have had this habituated crisis, this habituated stress, what you can do is you can coach not only for people to set goals, but to do that coaching in the way that practices 
surfacing the other options, that practices thinking about the other things that might get in the way, that practices thinking about how to overcome them, and, and begins to rewire the brain to basically to think about the future and to think about more than thing, one thing at once in a way that is very hard to do under normal circumstances. So it's trying to create a double bottom line. It's trying to create that thing that the nonprofit would normally be doing, helping a person get education or healthcare or whatever, at the same time that the way that you're doing it is making it more likely to be successful because the people themselves are, are building skills that help them override the natural tendency to be swamped in the face of crisis. And as you explained, this is a natural tendency for all of us. All of us, completely human and natural. It comes out of the fight or flight or freeze reaction that human beings have to stress. So we're walking through the, the park and we see a tiger in the bushes. We're wired to just say, okay, and take off and run uh, or freeze or um, be prepared to fight, but mostly flight under those circumstances. We're wired to do that. We're not wired to sit there and look at the tiger and say, I wonder if that tiger just escaped from the zoo. I wonder if that tiger is very, very well fed and so is not likely to bother me. I wonder if I just saunter along with her, it'll be okay. It doesn't look like he's slavering at me. It doesn't look like he's ready to pounce. No, human beings are not wired to perform that kind of analysis in the face of a tiger. We're wired to protect ourselves. And what happens is for people who are under the stresses of poverty, what happens is that everything happens in a way that heightens the number of tigers that you see in your day. Every day is filled with tigers. Every day is filled with challenges from childhood on up homelessness or multiple or, or physical threats or fears of safety, all this. And so what it does is it makes us look for tigers everywhere, everywhere, all the time. We're wired to look for more tigers. And because we're looking for them all the time, that readiness to run, that readiness to fight, that readiness to freeze is on hyper alert and is triggered much more quickly than it is for individuals who aren't fighting those battles every day. It's a very powerful visual example, isn't it? If we imagine it, we can almost feel ourselves tense up and think about what it must be like to live in constant stress. Well, we know what it feels like. We know what it feels like. There have been many studies that have been done. A wonderful book by Elder Shafir and Sendhil Malanathan called Scarcity describes and measures the impact of just thinking about a stressor on human beings' reactions. And what we know is that the uh, kind of stress that we're under can be equivalent to what it's like to be deprived of a full night's sleep when we're trying to make it, even any one of us are trying to make a, a, a decision under stress. And then given the fact that we are wired in that way and that we can all imagine situations where we are so stressed we cannot think about the best thing would. to do, yeah. then what does mentoring look like to reshape it? Well, you know, mentoring is coaching. It's a type of coaching. It's economic mobility coaching, but it's a type of coaching. So you can think about anything that you would have a coach for. Say you want to be an elite runner. 
if you are going to learn the skills that you need to learn and the habits that you need to learn to be an elite runner, what you can imagine is that it's something that takes practice over time. And it takes pointing out pointers that would be helpful to improve your performance over time. The more frequent and the longer the duration, the more likely you are to develop the muscle memory that becomes how a person becomes a diver under stress at the Olympics or how a person, the visualization you do, the other techniques that you do that help a person overcome the moment stressors of being in competition and defaulting to the ability to be able to do this by pure memory, pure muscle memory. And so when you're coaching with mobility mentoring or with brain science informed coaching, what you're doing is you're helping people do the normal things they would be doing, setting the goals that they want to set for themselves and thinking about how they can achieve those goals and thinking about the strategies for overcoming the problems that might get in the way of those goals. But in addition to that, what's happening is you're practicing over and over and over again, looking for the alternative plan looking for how to overcome something if it falls apart, looking for how to plot out steps that are reasonable, looking for how to choose in a way that is well-informed across your needs for what you're going to work on at any given time, what you're going to spend your money and your time on at any given time. And that practice of analysis, of strategic thinking about your options across many different things going on in your life, the goals that you're setting for your future and how that future could unfold, reinforced with all kinds of motivation and positive reinforcement or recognition of progress, allows that that process of thinking strategically um, to become habituated. And it does. And not only does it become habituated, but it demonstrates itself in the human behaviors that we call self-regulation that are witnessed by others in your family and become picked up or mimicked by them because other members of the family see the behaviors and parents are role models, family members are role models to each other. And so it's something we now have data that shows that it impacts uh, children and others in, in your environment. That's very interesting because it suggests that it's not just about helping the individual, but there is a wider effect on on the family and maybe even the the community they're in. And the way you describe it also suggests that it's a very tailored approach to people's individual situation. And I'm asking this because a lot of our listeners are from uh, or working in low and middle income countries where there's also coaching incorporated in Mm -hmm. uh, social protection or other social programs. But there, the coaching tends to be a bit more prescribed, if you will. There's a a set manual, a certain set of messages to go through to help a large number of people. But how Mm -hmm. does that work in your mentoring program? Well, we have manuals and we have goal setting tools and other tools that the coaches can use. For those who join the network that we have, that's an international network of organizations picking up and using these tools, the organizations can adapt. But what the tools and processes are set up to do is to standardize the process of individualization. (laughs) So so to give people tools that allow for every person they're coaching to be coached with similar techniques and with similar frameworks, but to individuate the process of uh, the goal setting itself. So every participant can analyze themselves 
for where they are having challenges and where they have strengths across a standardized framework. And then every participant can set for themselves which areas they want to work on first, second, and third. And even though this individuation is, is happening, the capacity of the frameworks are wonderful because they have, uh, they are, have the ability to track overall progress toward economic mobility and the progress of even programs or even systems toward economic mobility. So in the end, we have the capacity to track what's going on in this individual level and aggregate it up to say, is it helping people move out of poverty? Are they getting achievements in their education or their money management or their, uh, their health or their family stability or, or those categories? And we can know where and how their individuals are setting goals. You know, poverty is complex and getting out of poverty isn't, isn't just, as we said in the beginning, one thing, uh, a matter of one thing. It's a matter of having multiple cylinders firing together and the optimization of all of those cylinders in order for people to actually move out. And in every case, in every case, the challenges are different. In every case, the strengths are different. The motivation is different. And we have to use all of that to help people build a strong pathway toward economic independence. Taking this approach that looks across people's lives, the various barriers, but also opportunities, sounds really powerful. And I think you have the data as well to show that it works. There are also critics, though, of behavioral interventions by saying poverty is a structural problem. And it many is. of the barriers that people face are structural. And this kind of intervention might suggest that all the responsibility is placed with the individual and the families to indeed move out of poverty. So how does that work within your program? How do you engage with the structural? Yeah, we, I do not, I hope I do not, I do not put the tigers in the bushes. Society puts them there. When we deprive people of income, when we deprive them of resources, or when people are deprived of resources because of whatever circumstances in their lives, the tiger is there. When we have racist policies or other things, the tiger is there. So there's no question about the fact that if we eliminate the tigers, everybody has the capacity to make a better decisions and it grees up bandwidth for everyone to have the opportunity to improve their own circumstances in a better way, in a stronger way than if those tigers are not sitting there every day. So there's no question about the fact that policies that improve minimum wage or other resources, um, societal policies, uh, uh, the under, undergirding, the foundation of what we see as the kind of stresses that, that people in poverty have to deal with. We have to try to work on those systemic issues. But that being said, there will still and always be, unfortunately, trauma in people's lives, domestic violence, other things that will occur in people's lives that challenge the fairness of people who are subjected to those, those stressors to be able to have an equal chance, the children born into those stresses to have an equal chance uh, in comparison to people who don't have those stresses in their lives. And we have millions, billions across the, the world, trillions of dollars being spent on social interventions that are ineffective because they are not being built out of an understanding of how the stresses of poverty affect people and how you can design social interventions to be more powerful. We are not obviated from needing to build stronger social interventions because of the fact 
the larger systemic issues need to be dealt with as well. They both need to happen. And so um, in working with families to hopefully improve their chances of getting the best out of what NGOs have to offer or our social programs have to offer, in improving those chances, we create people who are in a very powerful place to challenge the systemic structural issues that uh, oppress their lives. So it, it adds to the power of that work of the, on those foundational issues without, without a doubt. Mm -hmm. Now, you are based in the U.S., but you also have a large international network. Could you say a little bit more about where the mentoring takes place and also whether the program is relevant in higher income countries only or also applicable in, in middle and lower income countries? Well, in the United States, we now, my organization now has a network of 125 or so organizations, many of them governmental institutions like the City of New York's Administration for Children's Services or large NGOs like the Texas Methodist Healthcare System, um, large partner organizations that are implementing this coaching across uh, 10,000 and more people in each one. We have, uh, I think last year, total in the United States, our tools and approaches were used with about 50,000 people across these 125 or so organizations. And then we have an additional 20, 25 organizations that are working outside the United States, also implementing mobility mentoring, the largest network of which is in the Netherlands, where the government of the Netherlands has financed the development and implementation of mobility mentoring in uh, 25 or so municipalities in, in the Netherlands as a, its standard coaching practice in those municipalities. To date, mobility mentoring has been primarily used in countries that have stronger sort of westernized social policies and programs. However, we have done some work with the World Bank and actually the World Bank in, in conjunction with us and with other leaders designed a whole program that's online and available about implementation of psychosocially informed development initiatives in um, countries that do not have westernized social uh, systems. Systems. And that implementation is available online. And in fact, we uh, contributed to some research that was done in an article in the Journal of Intervention, which looks at countries that have uh, are undergoing trauma and violence and looked at the implementation of uh, coaching in those sectors as well. I was also wondering if you could say a little more about some of the success factors or maybe some of the challenges in helping people to break the cycle of poverty when they go through the mentoring process. You've worked with thousands of people. And if we take the position that there are structural barriers, the, the tigers are there, that's, that's what we can see and that's what we have to work with, then still in people's lives, what are some of the things that you see that determine somehow their success or challenges in the program? As with any kind of coaching, as you can imagine, one of the inherent success criteria is can you connect with people consistently and build a coaching relationship over time? So we know that one of the factors in designing these programs that's really critically important is 
delivering coaching in a place that is a routine place for people to have um, in their daily lives. So uh, setting up a program that people have to travel to, that they, um, that they have to apply to get into or other kinds of barriers makes it harder to be successful. We try to implant these programs where we can in places that are routine for families. So where they live, maybe where their children get their, their childcare, in other places they have routine contact. In community colleges, for example, or places where people are going every day for training. And in, in setting them up there, uh, it makes it easier for people to access and doesn't create an additional stressor. Um, so logistics are important eliminating those stresses. What's also important is having programs structured in a way that don't create barriers to trust. So having staff who are of a similar background, race, ethnicity, to individuals who are being coached is helpful as well. And on the part of the participants, what is we know is important is for them to be entering into the programs, not because they must, but because they choose to. So coming into coaching is, is never going to work if the person is forced into it. Coming into coaching for it to be successful has to be something that a person themselves sees value, potential value in, and wants to engage in. So having um, informed participants who know what, what they're embarking upon in a coaching relationship and are motivated to do so and want that, or working with participants over time to build the trust so that they will want it is very, very crucial as well. We have had challenges in working with participants who are actively substance abusing, have active untreated mental illness, or are in the midst of an ongoing threat. So it is challenging to try to do coaching under those circumstances, but not impossible. There are studies that show that you can work with active schizophrenics and get better employment outcomes through coaching than through other forms of, of more traditional case, case management, that the out outcomes are, are statistically significantly improved, even with people with active psychosis. So it is more challenging for us uh, to work with individuals who are undergoing any of the things I told you earlier, but not impossible. It just takes, takes more time, more time and effort. That's fascinating to hear about the importance of trust, participants' willingness, and also lowering the barrier. So some behavioral science insights in how the program itself operates. Yeah, it tells us that people often need multiple attempts to succeed at something. And so programs that are set up understanding that those multiple attempts might be needed and are built um, to support multiple attempts is another behavioral insight that's useful and you build into the programming. As is, as you just said, I imagine the fact that you build positive trust and you don't force people in the, into the program, which certainly from our work, we see in many social programs where things become punitive or people exactly. are coerced in a certain behavior. There might be short-term outcomes that we would desire to see, but it may be less successful in the long run. Exactly. In the United States, for example, in our welfare to work uh, policies where people who are receiving government benefits for poverty are required to get a job and are told they must get a job and prove that they're trying to get a job. 
we know um, from research that those punitive policies are not more successful at getting people into employment. They don't increase that kind of stick approach, doesn't increase the rates of employment. But what we also know is that by having welfare to work workers who are trained in these brain science-based methods, that the rates of engagement increase, that the outcomes of people actually getting jobs improve. And so uh, trying to use this this, this body of science to help inform workers on how to just do their work better and also how not to be so frustrated by what they see because workers care and they want to have good outcomes too and they can become very very frustrated and burnt out working with participants who don't behave in ways that they think that they should and when they understand the underlying reasoning for why what happens happens it can decrease the you know frustration on the part of workers and improve their effectiveness. That's really interesting. And I think important to point out as well, it's not just about changing the mindset of participants who go into the program, but also everybody else working with or working on poverty and low income. It's yeah. such a, a systemic issue. Yeah, you have to change the mindset of workers in order to be able to change the mindset of participants. And you know, there are beautiful meta-analysis kind of studies. And what it shows is that workers who have high expectations that their participants will be successful on average get 38% higher outcomes from participants than workers who come in saying, oh, well, he's never going to be able to do that. He's a train wreck, it'll never happen. So the effect of workers' mindsets and beliefs on what happens to participants is really quite crucial. And is part of this whole brain science framing of how you create those high expectations on the part of staff who might otherwise really have no reason to face work with hopes that things can be improved or any different than what they've been seeing for years. Well, Beth, that was fascinating. Before we say goodbye, is there anything that you would like to share with the listeners that I haven't asked you about or that you haven't been able to talk about? Well, I guess I would just say when we first started doing this work in 2009, and it was very un iconoclastic. It was very much this idea of individuating anything in human services, which just sort of poo-pooed right from the beginning. We were told, you'll never be able to do this at scale because you're doing individual processes. You will never be able to do it cost-effectively or cheaply because you're doing individual processes. Because it has to be done over time, you won't be able to do it unless it's very, very expensive and you know requires too much of an investment and it's a Cadillac approach. And I guess what I'd like to be able to say you is that, you know, we have implemented improved coaching for 10,000 plus families who were, were receiving home visiting programs to teach them how to be better parents in the state of Washington. And it was implemented in, you know, with hundreds and hundreds of workers across tens of thousands of families. And the only cost that was incremental was the cost of training the workers how to do that daily work differently. And what was interesting was what came out of that small incremental cost was I had statistically significant improvements in 17 areas, all areas measured of adult development. So people's education, their work, their parenting, their parental stress. And um, what also happened was the children of parents who were coached had better entrance exams into kindergarten, better screening exams into kindergarten than the children of parents who weren't, all just for the cost of retraining existing workers. 
So I think what we've learned is that it can be done at scale, even though it's an individual process. We can find ways to do it cost-effectively and it can radically change the way that human service workers do their work and the efficacy of their outcomes. That's a really encouraging note to end on, the fact that a more individual and tailored approach can be done at scale and it doesn't cost the world. Beth, thank you very much for your time. This has been really interesting and I'm sure our listeners will enjoy the episode. Thank you, Katie. It's been such a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for listening. If you like this episode, you might also want to listen to some of our earlier episodes. Episode 7 talks about behavioural science as a potential cure for poverty, picking up on many of the issues that Beth also discussed. Episode 5 is about a programme, the Poverty Stoplight Programme in Paraguay, also offering a tailored approach to help people out of poverty. Please follow us on Twitter or Instagram or wherever you get your podcasts. And we hope you'll join us again next time.